0: Leaders dust off the ashes and use their failures as fuel to work harder and as lessons to come back wiser and stronger, more resilient, more determined, and more committed to excellence. Today, I'm speaking with Jackie Bruder for the second time. Uh, we We had a really good interview with her and her husband Hugh. Um, if you haven't listened to that episode yet, it's an amazing episode and it gives you a little more uh, history and background on what her and Hugh are doing right now. Uh, she is uh, an IASIS provider, does neurofeedback, and she is the co-founder of Menden Mines. She began her career with Lauderdale Lakes Fire Department in 1987 Um, In 1992, she moved on to Miami-Dade Fire Rescue. Miami-Dade is the largest metropolitan fire department in the state of Florida. She moved up uh, through the ranks, retiring as a fire captain paramedic. She was also very active in the department's dive rescue team, uh, doing scuba and You know, people in the fire service understand what that is, but uh, people that aren't familiar, um, dive rescue teams, they they train with different types of scuba gear, different types of tactics and techniques in order to affect rescue, depending on what type of emergency it is, whether it's a a vehicle in a canal or um, a boat that has either been in an accident or taken on water. She also assisted in the training of the fire department's trauma transport protocol. Now, that being just a little bit of your history, Jackie, m- maybe we can get into your your childhood. You, I know that you grew up in Florida. Um, you were You were born and raised in Florida, right? Actually, I was born in Puerto Rico.
1: My, okay. um, my parents met in Cuba. My dad was American. My mother was from Spain. Their family owned homes in Cuba. And my dad was actually ex-military. So they sent him over there to see what Castro was up to. Very interesting story. Wow. Fell in love with my mom, had five children. And then right before Batista took over, they were able to leave. And they went to Puerto Rico because it was a natural transition for Latins to move to another Latin country. And um, my father knew that my mother's family would struggle in, in America because there was no Latins over here then. So my dad moved my mother's entire family, all seven of her brothers and sisters and all of their children into one house. And he stayed there until they all established their own homes, their own businesses, their own lives. And then they moved to the States. So I was born there actually by accident. I was a, uh, you might want to say a Scotch night accident. You already had four kids. You didn't really need another one at this time, but it happened anyway. <laughs> so we came here when I was four. That was my primary language was Spanish. Thank God I had that. As we know in the eighties when the mayor of Boatlift came, all the Latins moved in. I, I knew the language. I was able to, to work in Miami and not struggle because it, it was difficult.
0: But, so, um, so they, you settled in Miami, your family settled in Miami Settled
1: right in went through the private school system for a little while, then ended up in the public school system. Um, my parents got divorced, my dad remarried, I got three more brothers. So I grew up with six brothers. Wow hence making it a lot easier to work in fire service. So I, I understood boys. I understood how, you know, how to get along with them. I mean, I think until I was about 20, I was more boy than girl.
0: Pretty we're tough. <laughs>
1: yeah. I was dirty. than mine being dirty. It was, it was more fun than putting on makeup and uh, it just didn't relate with, girls as much as I did with guys. Not that I didn't have a lot of girlfriends. I had a lot of girlfriends, but I was really comfortable around around guys because they think different than girls do in a lot of ways. So thank God I had a sister though. She helped me be more girl. She came to my rescue in my senior year. (laughs) What's that? My sister came to my rescue in my senior year and basically helped me understand that you know I am a girl. should wear makeup and I should take care of myself that way. And She taught me a lot about, about actually being a female.
0: And where, where does your sister fall in the hierarchy of your siblings? She's,
1: I'm the last of five of my original family and she's the middle of that. So she's six years older than me. So that, that makes for a difficult, uh, that, that, that age difference is hard. It's okay when you're young, but then when you turn 10, she's 16. But I had a brother that was three years older, so him and I were super close. We would go fishing and canoeing and, you know, that kind of stuff. She became okay. my best friend later on.
0: So did you have the typical South Florida childhood of fishing and boating and all that stuff?
1: absolutely that's that's all we ever did that's my dad would pile all the kids in the boat and we'd go out to keep a skein and go to the mangroves and go skiing and then we'd go snorkeling we'd go to the keys and go fishing and diving and that's pretty much all we ever did we were always out on the boat that's some of my fondest memories and that's what we do with our kids as well we have boating is our
0: our favorite pastime Now, did you play sports in high school?
1: I played sports my whole life. I started softball when I was in third grade, and I played into high school. And I also did gymnastics, and I ran track. So I was never home. (laughs) It's a little different. It's not, the sports weren't like they are now. The sports were a lot of after-school sports, school sports, it wasn't, like you would come home and then an hour later, your parent would drive you somewhere and and drop you off. It was more like just everybody did it all together after school. And I did still do gymnastic meets, but it was all through school. And softball was all through school or quarry league, which is a league that I got into as well. So sports was a huge deal. Thank God for that. It kept me in shape. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, made made it easy for the transmission transition to get hired on the fire department because it's not easy, as, as I'm sure your listeners know. If they're females in the fire service, or even men in the fire service, when you want to pass that physical agility and be able to save your own life or anybody else's, you need to be in shape and you need to stay in shape.
0: So it was. Well, what motivated you to to go into the fire service?
1: You know, I look back sometimes and I wonder why I didn't see it earlier. And the reason why I say that is my mom was always lighting up our kitchen. (laughs) Back then there were no cell phones, or even cordless phones. So she would start to make me like Cuban food. She liked to make those fried bananas, the plantains. And she'd come home and put oil on a pan And she'd go to her room and get on the phone and she'd light up the kitchen. So there was always firemen at our house. I mean, we burnt our kitchen down twice. (laughs) So that should have been probably my first clue watching them do that because that was pretty cool. But then as I was growing up, my first boyfriend's brother was a fireman and all of his friends were firemen and I was around firemen all the time. It just never dawned on me because back then there weren't females in the fire service. It Wasn't something you thought about. You know, it wasn't something my dad or my mom was saying, oh, try the fire service, that, that looks like a good fit. It just wasn't something, I was a girl, right? I, they didn't, girls didn't even play fast pitch back then. They, they couldn't try out for a baseball team. They couldn't play football. They couldn't do any of the things the girls Forget it, basketball, men's basketball or playing with the men, it just didn't happen. And then, so I went to college, I became an orthodontic assistant. I was working for a practice and I had a patient come in. So I applied braces on everybody that came in the office. I did the initial visit. So I had first contact and she came in in a blue jumpsuit with a paramedic patch on it. And I had obviously seen that jumpsuit before that's my first boyfriend, Ronnie Richards, his brother was Gary Richard, who worked for Miami-Dade Fire Rescue. So I'd seen that jumpsuit many times. And I was like, I sat her down in my chair and I was so curious. I said, um, I don't understand. Who do you work for? And at the time she was working for an ambulance company up in Broward and she had just gotten a paramedic license and was getting ready to go to fire school. And I was like, so wait a minute, you're gonna try to be a firefighter? She goes, well, up in Broward, you can be just a paramedic. You don't have to be a firefighter because back then Broward EMS were only paramedics. You didn't have to be a firefighter. It wasn't, they weren't cross-trained. Well, that was that. Never thought about it, but after that, the next day I registered for school at a private school called Medical Arts. And I worked part-time, went to school part-time. It took me two years a little under two years. Then I worked for Randall Eastern Ambulance for a year on their first ever ALS unit that they've ever had doing in hospital transports, which was a real real learning experience because you're in the back of a truck by yourself, transporting patients from like West Palm all the way to Miami and you're bagging them all on your own all the way back, all the way down. So you had to really I got thrown into fire right away. And then Lauderdale Lakes Fire Department hired me. I was going through the process with a bunch of departments and they hired me first. so I took the first job that I was offered and I loved it. I fell in love with the fire service. But if I could do one thing over, I would have spent a little bit more time talking to those firefighters that I knew and had them mentor me because I didn't like our children. We have two boys in the fire service and they're both firefighter paramedics. So their whole life, they were mentored. Even they, when they didn't know they were being mentored, they were being mentored. It Wasn't intentional. We weren't pushing them to be in the fire service. But when you spend your life around firemen, because that's who you want to be around, because they're the best people on the planet, and they spend that time around those people it rubs off they hear the stories they understand what we do you know they see us risk our lives they see us help others they see us help others off duty i mean it's not just at work it's 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 who you are firefighters don't leave the uniform at home they all carry boo-boo bags they all stop and help the public they help their neighbors you know they put up storm shutters for you know, the elderly woman that lives on the end of the street. That's just the kind of people they are. So they were mentored the whole lot. I didn't have that. I didn't have anybody tell me what you're supposed to do and how you're supposed to do it and how to respond to certain situations. And I think that's important to mentor people, mentor new firefighters, especially if they haven't had a family of it. Like our boys, when they first started, we would get phone calls because they work for my own day. So we would get phone calls from officers, other firefighters, or we'd get a text going, um, "You know, I'm, I'm working with so-and-so to your son, which one of them? And I said, they're high and tight. And anybody in the fire service understands what high and tight means their they're hair, it's just not that their hair is short, they're doing it right. They're coming in early. They're checking out the truck. They're cleaning the station. They're doing all the duties they need to do before everybody gets there. You know, they know what their role is as a probation employee. They know what's expected of them and how to manage it. They know how to get yelled at and, you know, because they're going to make mistakes and they, they, they know how to handle it because they've been mentored. But I didn't have that. I learned on the job training, I suppose. Keep your mouth shut and listen a lot.
0: What do you what do you think the the biggest challenge for you was being being one of the only women in in the fire service at that time in, in South Florida? When I'm sure it wasn't like they welcomed you with open arms at that time.
1: Well, I can say that.
0: All in all, I was treated well.
1: There was incidences where, and I'm not quite sure if they would have treated a guy any different, where though I had five years, like when I started with Lauderdale Lakes, that's one station department, three units, everybody's family within a month, they know who you are and what you're made of, and there's no question. So if you come in and you are a hard worker, They didn't care if you're a girl, you're a boy, they didn't care who you were. You were a part of that small team. You guys really need each other. You need to be good. You need to be good at it. And you need to care for each other. So Lauderdale Lakes was a no-brainer. But when you want to transition to Dade County, that's a whole different animal. We're talking about thousands of firefighters. We're talking about you don't necessarily go to one station, you can be hopping around to different stations, lots of personalities. So even though I had five years with Lakes with a ton of experience, I mean, we averaged 12 to 15 calls a shift. I had at least a cardiac arrest a shift because 75% of the residents were over the age of 75. And then the other 25 were low income blacks. It was a busy area. You know, it was a demanding territory. I saw a lot. There wasn't anything I hadn't seen. I'd had five pediatric cardiac arrests. I've had multiple traumas. Five years I had seen more than I probably would have seen in a long time in a regular fire department. So I came with experience, but they, you doesn't matter what you come in with Dade County. It doesn't matter where you worked, who you worked for, how busy you were, you started out from zero. Right? Officer would have known, knows your history. They usually ask, they try to get to know you, but until you prove yourself, and it, sometimes it's in multiple situations because again, you're moving from stations to stations. So you're having to establish that reputation. It takes a little longer, it takes a lot more patience. You have to work a little harder, do it a little faster, keep your mouth shut until you're accepted. And I don't, I do think sometimes being a female, not necessarily I was treated differently because I was a female, but I think you put a girl into a firehouse with a bunch of guys So they don't know what to do either. They don't know who you are, how you're gonna respond or what type of person you are, of course, because they haven't worked with you. So in the beginning, I think they're a little uncomfortable and I'm maybe a little uncomfortable, but once I had six brothers, it takes about half a shift for them to realize that do not change who you are because I really don't care what you say. I don't, I don't get offended by cursing. I don't, I don't get offended by people talking about sex. I don't get offended about anything, nothing, nothing offends me. So once they know that, once they know they're in their house and they can be who they are and not have to worry about the girl being offended or getting upset with them or getting in trouble, it usually is a much better situation. And I never believed in going in there and telling them how to run their house and and what to do and how to do it. I know we had policies about that, you know, don't bring up politics, Mm -mm. talk about sex, all those things they don't like us to talk about. But you know, they call it a firehouse for a reason. It's your house. These are your people. What are you supposed to become somebody different when you walk into the firehouse? They're your peeps and that's who you hang out with and you trust them with your life. They need to know who you are. So I believed in getting to know who they were and them knowing who I was and knowing that it's safe for them to be who they are and say what's on their mind. you know, sometimes you're having a problem at home and things aren't going so well and you need the word to explain that or you need to talk about certain things that just, you know, your bros understand it. So I don't think I had a hard time with that because I understood it. And as time went on, there were much more girls getting hired after I got hired. I mean, I had like I think I probably had when I got hired with Dave County. I probably had four other girls in the class with me, four or five other girls in the class with me. So it made a you know, but it didn't matter that those girls were just like I was, you know. They were they were there to do a job. They loved what they were doing, and just wanted to be treated the same as the guys.
0: Any of those women? Well, I'm I'm sure not. Not every woman coming into the fire service has the same kind of family background that they grew up with with brothers and the same kind of uh, awareness that, that you came into the fire service with. So I'm sure that you're aware of women that, that had a tougher time than you assimilating.
1: I absolutely had one, it was in my training class when I first got hired, going through recruit training. It was, it was an incident that, it made me uncomfortable, honestly. And it made me uncomfortable because it made her uncomfortable. It was an incident where they, we were going to dive rescue training. So Miami-Dade Fire Rescue has scuba gear on every single one of their units, even the battalion chiefs have scuba gear. Doesn't necessarily mean there's a diver on that unit, but the gear is there in case there is a diver on that unit. And so they, they, they make sure that we're proficient in not only swimming, you have to pass the swim test, but they teach you patterns that you need to learn as a skin diver for every single person that gets hired. And because our class is so big and student-teacher ratio, they split our class in half. So half was in the classroom and half was at the lake. And I happened to be at the lake that day and half the class was at the classroom. And one of the girls that was in with that group, they were at headquarters and headquarters was, was not what it is now, it's a small building. And they were in the parking lot and headquarters is right next to where the shop is, you know, the mechanical shop for the trucks. And a truck pulled in and officer and one of the crew members got out and saw them all standing in line waiting for the instructors to come out to tell them where to go what to do and he the officer and the firefighter walked up and said to one of the male firefighters where everyone could hear "Uh, i'm going to use a better word than he used because we don't like that c word but he said something to the effect of, I heard you have a lot of C's in your class. Where are they? Because they only saw her. They didn't see all of the other girls. And it was obviously not normal for them to have that many girls in one class. They had a lot of girls and we were all, firefighter paramedics all had had jobs somewhere else. So not only were we a lot of girls, but it was a lot of girls that already trained and it was not normal, I suppose and when he said that that girl heard it and that girl had had spent I think four or five years with Hollywood and apparently Hollywood at the time did not have a very good reputation of treating the girls well and that's why she left Hollywood because she was treated poorly as a female in her eyes I personally don't know anything about that but from her She had mentioned that she was treated very differently than the guys and they hammered her harder. They treated her differently. So she came into Dade County already having a bad experience leaving there hoping to have a better experience. And then a couple weeks into it, the seward pops up and she was pretty upset. She carpooled with one of the guys in her class, in the class, they carpooled because they lived near each other and they found out the first week they lived near each other. So they carpooled and on the way home, she verbalized how uncomfortable that made her feel and that, that was so uncool. She said nothing, but he did. The guy went to administration the next day and brought it up and told administration how inappropriate it was that this officer had said that. And I think he said it just to kind of put people in check. I don't think he meant in any way to really stir the feathers, but boy, it stirred feathers. It rocked the boat, the ship was going down. The Person he complained to was a female captain in charge of training, so. Of course, she wants us females to be treated equally. Um, The word was not a good word to use. It was just all around inappropriate. I would not have done that. I wouldn't have taken it as personal, but I can understand it. I totally get where she's coming from. So they brought them in, they interviewed everybody that was there. They were trying to find out who it was. They went through the law office to find out who was out of service and who was down. And they put all those probationaire employees on the spot. Now they didn't know anybody. Obviously, they hadn't even been in the field yet to so know anybody's name. They didn't know what unit number. They didn't know who the guy was. They weren't expecting this huge investigation, but it went down. It it, it made the made the probation employees extremely uncomfortable because that's the last thing you want, right? They hit the field knowing everyone, knowing that you just got an officer, you know, the DAR or some kind of discipline. No, bad move. No, that's not what they wanted. So no one came clean, even if they did know. Lips were sealed, They did not take it any further than that, because they weren't going to let that happen. And they talked about it amidst themselves, but It was, you know, it wasn't good for her, I suppose, because she went from one bad situation and now she's going, here we go again, now going back into another bad situation. So yeah, there definitely were, and I saw it repeatedly, girls that, whether they were seriously treated differently, which they could have been, not necessarily that I saw them get treated differently, I mean, I have seen them, people, girls get treated differently. I'll give you an example, but in general, they don't think that's the case. I think there's just some circumstances where some people will treat a girl differently because they really don't want girls in fire service. Some guys don't, bottom line, seriously just don't want girls in fire service. They don't, they don't think they belong and that's okay. You know, that's like, let's say, I work at a beauty salon. And I've got a totally straight guy who doesn't understand, you know, the girls chat. And, you know, it makes him uncomfortable when the girls talk. And so the girls may not necessarily want that guy there either because he may say, hey, that makes me uncomfortable. I don't want you talking about that. It'd be the same scenario, same situation. So I, like, I can see it happening. But sometimes those the situations where I came in as a captain into a station that I had not worked at before, got the bid there, and there was females on another shift. She was a lieutenant, she, she wasn't a captain, and she was working with a captain. And there's a girl's bathroom in that station, which is not normally the case. You don't always have a girl's bathroom. You, you know, Sometimes can have a like the officers got a bathroom, and the girls would use that bathroom. But this was a designated girls' bathroom. Um, it had a shower and had a toilet. It was just for girls. Well, the guys would go in, and I don't know whether it was intentional. Maybe it was. Maybe it wasn't. She thought it was. Where they would go in and they they'd go to the bathroom, take a leak all around the toilet, or they just totally trashed the bathroom, not flush the toilet. They would just trashed her bathroom when they're not even supposed to go in there in the first place. And she had brought it up to the captain a couple of times and he, he didn't do anything about it. He didn't dress with the, with the crews and say, look, that bathroom's hers. It's the only one she gets to use. You've got four other stalls, use those. It's the only one she can go into. And so when I came in, I, I was barely in the door for five minutes and she took me in the office, closed the door and says, can we talk? Um, I'm having a reoccurring problem and I can't get a resolution to it. I don't know what to do. And so she turned to me because I was a female and she thought I could understand it and she wanted me to help her with it. You know, she had approached the captain. He didn't do anything. So yeah, there's are times where there's some people that, that don't respond to that kind of stuff. But I don't think it's something that, girls live with every day, at least I didn't. And when I spoke to that officer the next, you know, a couple hours later, he was completely responsive. It never happened again. So I don't know if it changed because I have rank, equal rank to him. I don't know if it's because he respected me. Um, I don't know why it was happening and it wasn't corrected when she complained. Maybe just simply didn't like her. You know, maybe there's some people that just don't like each other and they are, they're not gonna respond to them because they don't like them or they don't understand them or for whatever reason, resent them. I don't know their dynamic. All I know was when I came in and I asked nicely, can we please change that scenario? It is making her uncomfortable and it's really not right, you know? And he was absolutely, no one will go in that bathroom again, put up a girl's bathroom sign a month later and never happened again.
0: Can we talk a little bit about your, your leadership philosophy? You know, because um, there's, in the fire service, there's sort of two dynamics, the, the leadership, in the station with the personnel. And then there's how you lead in high stress environments when you're on a serious call and it takes on a whole different tone. But I mean, you you spent 30 years in the fire service, male dominated field, people respond differently to different approaches. You know, I would imagine that, as you worked your way up you you had a a degree of mentoring you you learn by watching others what works, what doesn't work, but you know I know you've had a very successful career well respected you've been there, you've done that. Can you tell me a little bit about your progression and really what your your leadership philosophy is after being in the fire service for for so long.
1: It definitely was a progression, like you said. When I got hired in Lauderdale Lakes, there were no officers on the rescues. We kind of took turns being in charge. And with a natural progression, this senior person does not want to do the paperwork. So you got thrown into what normally would be a lieutenant's (laughs) position immediately. You You had to do it all. And you had to learn how to do it quickly. And so that first year you're in charge of, on every call. Um, that was super easy. But when I went down to Dade County, it was a little bit different animal. Again, you're moving around a lot, a lot of different personalities. You don't get to know people as well as quickly. And that has its benefits obviously. And I loved working there but in the beginning there was a huge learning curve for me because when i'm coming from another department with some experience but nobody recognizes that so your opinion is not necessarily taken at any point you know you really have to prove yourself you have to do something outstanding for them to go oh oh okay wow this rookie's got some skills you got to prove yourself there's so many personalities and so many people but if you went on a call, like I would, I went on a call one time where, because I speak Spanish and no one knew, right? You wouldn't know I speak Spanish. I don't have an accent. And so I was on a situation where my, it was over, I was, I was there early. So I got a call with offgoing shift and the firefighters spoke Spanish. Nobody in the house spoke English. And the officer did not speak English. Person was not doing well. And he spoke to the family member to find out what was going on and was translating to the officer, and he gave him a completely different synopsis of what she had said. And I heard that. And now, what do I do? Oh, I'm going to call him out on it in front of the officer and embarrass him. And what if she understands some English? So I immediately got put in a really bad spot. So I took the officer aside and I just leaned in and said, it's not exactly what she said. And I told him exactly word for word what she said. He had, now maybe he didn't understand Spanish. So I could have gotten that wrong, but he wanted to go ahead and transport an in response to the patient by ambulance to the hospital. And I thought it needed to go with us and he was painting a picture that this is a normal status for him. So now I'm put in a horrible situation. I've, I've, I've got to say something because I am uncomfortable with sending this guy by ambulance really far away. And I'm on probation. I speak Spanish, but they don't know. I speak Spanish. They don't know me. I'm I'm early. I'm just started at the station. They know nothing about me. And here I am gonna kind of complain going to why and make a situation, but it's it's someone's life, right? So what do you do with that? So I took the officer aside. So I'm super uncomfortable, super uncomfortable, putting this guy in an ambulance. Can you? Can we please just take him to the hospital? And he goes, he goes, no, no, no. Let's. I've called. A, I've called an ambulance. So I went back in and reassessed the patient just to make sure I'm wrapping my head around this fight that I'm going to have. And I came back and I said, look, and I gave him what I was seeing. I was in respiratory distress. Respiratory rate was up, heart rate was up, altered mental status. Now, granted, he was elderly and he was deteriorating. This was a normal progression of his deterioration. But he was still considered unstable, in my opinion. He sent him by ambulance. And when the ambulance got there, the ambulance didn't want to take But the other guy convinced him, you know, he's an elderly person, he wants to go to his hospital. And Granted, he's gonna make it there. I knew that, but what if he didn't? What if he didn't? So I took the officer aside and I said, honestly, this is wrong. you're putting me in a bad spot, putting this on a bad spot. Something happens to that guy. It's our fault and He didn't hear me and it was, it was tough. I I had a hard time with that. And so when we got back to the station, I said, I don't understand. I thought I'm a part of a team and you just disregarded me. He goes, well, I don't know you. I don't know what your skills are. I said, but if you look at it on paper, it looks bad. Look at the paper. Don't look at me. Just look at what the paper says. And he said, no, I'm going to do what I got to do. I'm going to do what I think I need to do. And you don't need to worry about it. Well, I couldn't let it go. So I said, you know, I'm going to call the chief and I'm going to get his opinion on it. Because I'm, I can't work with you if that's the way it's going to be. I, I, I was scared to ever run a call with him again. So he goes, you can call the chief all day long. Go ahead and give him a call. Well, it was my chief now because the hour had gone by. So it wasn't his chief, it was my chief. And my chief knew me. I had been working in the battalion. He had seen me, he knew me. And so I said, chief, listen, I don't wanna create a problem. I don't really, I just want an opinion. I want this to be just an opinion, a learning tool for both of us. How do I handle this? And I said, I don't wanna tell you if you're gonna make this into a disciplinary. I made that very clear what's I'm going to tell him. I just needed him to to have a conversation. That's what I wanted, a conversation. He I told him the story. He knew I spoke Spanish because he he heard me speak Spanish. He knew I'm fluent. Heard my story. And I was I was in another room when I did this, when I spoke to him. And so he goes, put me, put me on hold and get get the officer back on the phone. This officer was a captain at the time. And he goes, I want you to go in the room. So I put him on hold, I went back into the room, and he puts it on speaker phone. Oh my God, he ripped into that officer It made me uncomfortable. He, he, he ripped into him. We didn't have a policy at the time that said everybody on there is a paramedic and their license is on the lines. So the officer really needs to consider everybody's opinion and, and has to go with everybody's opinion. If one firefighter doesn't agree, then you have, to do, you have to err on the side of the patient, basically the rule now. But he gave him such a hard time. He wasn't nice. He ripped into him. And that's basically what he told him. When you've got any paramedic on a call who's uncomfortable, you have to listen to that, that person. You don't know her experience. You don't know where she came from. You don't know what she knows. You, don't, you have to listen to her. And he, when he was done, he didn't, obviously this, this is conversation. He had a conversation. He wasn't documenting anything. He wasn't gonna get the guy. He followed through what we had agreed to. And when he got off the phone, officer looked at me and he goes, I thought he was gonna hate my guts. I thought that was that. I had just established a reputation of being Mm -hmm. that girl who is, you know, the BI. That's where I thought I was. And I'm on probation. I thought, I'm done. I'm done. And he looked over me and you could tell he was pissed. He looked over at me and he goes, I'm gonna need a minute. And so I left doing station duties, calls me back in a few minutes later and he goes, I want to apologize, I'm sorry. And he said, I should have heard you. He's right, I should have heard you. You're a part of that team, regardless whether I know you or not. You got a patch on your chest, you have the skills. I should have heard you. I was shocked. Now other people heard the story so it obviously get, get, got twisted around to be, "Oh, I can't believe she be-eyed about the captain. He's awesome. He's great And he is. The guy is a great. He's one of my friends. He's, we're very close. But you, I had to learn how to navigate that. And I had never been in a position like that before, and it had happened on other calls, and I had just kept my mouth shut. And because my opinion was different from theirs. And I had kept my mask, but this time I couldn't do it. And that helped me have the courage to do it again when it happened later. Like if an officer was making a, a decision that was breaching protocol and I was uncomfortable, I never said, hey Cap, you know, that's not what protocol is. What are you doing? Never. I learned to lean in and say, hey, I'm uncomfortable. Vertical 12 says, we should be taking this guy to the hospital. Can can we do that please? And don't, one, you're not embarrassing him. Two, family, no one knows. And you're verbalizing your conscience, you're doing your job, and you're letting him know how you feel without compromising the situation. So that became my go-to from that lesson. But that was a really stressful situation. And there was oftentimes where I'm sure all firefighters, not just females have been in that position where they don't agree with the decision that's made and they have to find a way to let themselves be heard. Because you have to live with that decision, but and it's probably my own personal female on the job, new female. No one knows me, and don't want to be labeled the B.I. because that is the reputation that you get as a girl who complains. You know, oh, you don't want to work with her. She's just gonna, she's gonna throw you under the bus. You don't want that. So over time, it took it took years, I think, years to to let everyone that I worked with, including when I was an officer, let them know they come first. So when I became an officer, I, I did something I don't know if other officers do, but it's something I started doing. We do morning briefing every morning. Talk about, we go over a policy. We talk about any memos that have come out. We talk about problems with the truck and then we talk about what we want from each other. Assignments, we give assignments. I give assignments to everybody, so that there's no question on the truck who's doing what. Like you're gonna get the vitals and the blood sugar and you're gonna work the monitor, right? I give assignments. On my truck, personally, uh, I was in charge of a unit, it didn't matter whatever unit it was, the first thing I let them know is that I'm not here to tell you what to do. I am a part of the team. I make three or I make four. I'm here for you. I'm here. Whatever you're struggling with, whatever is your problem, I need, I wanna know. And I'm not, I'm not gonna change your routine. I don't wanna make, if you wanna go shopping today, we're gonna go shopping today. If you've got a, you need to do something. We're gonna do it, whatever you need to do. Take care of my people first. But then I would go down the list of the things that were a priority so that they knew what to expect. So there was no question on my style. So I would tell them I want bottle signs, I want blood sugar and 12 leads and anybody, and I would tell them what we're gonna do. And then I would, the last thing I would say is if at any point you're on a call and you feel that you're, whatever it is triggered by that patient, and something that's gonna come out of your mouth is unkind, I'd like you to just step out. Before you say, it, just step out. We got this, we'll get you. I know there's times when that happens where people just need to step away because that person is triggering them or the energy in the room is just bad for them or they're just, it's such a BS call or a call that, oh my God, they told us the patient's in cardiac arrest and CPR is in progress and the guy's sitting in a chair with a remote control. That kind of stuff, that adrenaline push and then you get there and oh, what, okay. What happened there? And it, it triggers people. So my, I wanted them to know that I'm there for them. It's not just about the patient. Yeah, the patients, it's our client. We need, we need to do the right thing. But they're important too. And if they know, oh, Captain told me I, I, I need to step out and I'm okay. it's okay if I step out, I'll put my clipboard down, I'll manage the call. Because I would rather them step out and regroup instead of building that resentment and anger and have that bad energy in the call. And then there's times when you get there in the morning and you know your guy's off. You, you know he's... He screeched in at two minutes till his uniform doesn't look so great. He looks tired. You know, you have to be aware of your your, your peeps. You have to pay attention. Don't ignore it. I never ignored it. Would watch him for a little while and then I'd, hey, can we have a talk for a minute? Come in my office. I'd close the door and I'd say, what's up? Are you all right, dude? Everything okay at home? That check-in is something that became a part of my routine. Especially after 2008, when the market crashed and we stopped getting pay increases and they kept taking money out of our pockets instead of giving us money. And things, you know, we were starting to feel unloved and unappreciated by the fire service. And people were angry, people were disappointed, people were frustrated. And so there was a lot of unhappy, folks sometimes at work in the morning I would take them aside and I'd hear them I'd listen to them I'd let them know that they're not alone I feel your pain and that that I think in my opinion is something more officers need to do kind of be self-aware of their peeps and, and, and watch what they're doing I mean they're calling in sick a lot and and they're their responses to patients on calls aren't good and things are changing, you need to check in. And that's what I think makes a leader a better leader because you're just not leading them to do a good job and have them enjoy their job, but you're letting them know they come first. Firefighters come first. Sure, the public pays our salary and, and they're important And of course, that's our job. But if the mental health and if if our guys aren't good, then they're not gonna be good to anybody else either. Their families, their brothers and sisters, the firehouse, of brothers and sisters at home, everything is a trickle effect. So over time, I realized that that was the most important thing to do. Communicate with your people, let them know where you stand, find out where they stand. And if they're struggling, be there for them. Give them the ear they need because all firefighters know this. I don't have you don't need to say it because most people that are listening are, you know, wear a badge or wear a uniform, know that we see the worst in people. We know people struggle. We know people lose their parents. You see it on Facebook. They lose their parents or kids have cancer. They, you know, they had their dog died. You see all that. But we're there. We smell it. We hear the cries. We, we, we feel the sadness. It's, it's all around us on the call. So it's a three-dimensional feeling when you're a firefighter. And you can't just shake it off. It's not like a wet dog where you shake off the water and you're good to go. That, you carry that, that sticks with you, especially the kids, you know, especially the neglected kids, Those, those stay with you. So if we stay connected with our people and pay attention to what's happening to them and not go, oh, he's just, you know, he's lazy or he's just having a bad day or he's had a couple bad days. He'll be cool, he's all right, he's strong, he's badass. No, no, it's, I don't think that's good enough, I think. And not just as officers, I think we all need to check in on that. Pay more attention, have some awareness of our people so that when they start to go down that rabbit hole that we can go down, which we know Sure, I'm not sure if most of know, but more firefighters died in line of duty that died by their own hand than in the line of duty. So people, there's more suicides than on duty deaths. That's alarming. Why is that happening? We need to learn to check in, to be there for them.
0: You're involved in in providing uh, IASIS, neurofeedback treatment um, that treats PTSD. And in the previous episode, we kind of go into to that technology, but I, I kind of wanted to get your personal experience with, with PTSD or those close to you that have struggled with it and, and how they dealt with it.
1: I didn't see it in the beginning. you would hear about PTSD and when it first started becoming more aware in the fire service, I didn't recognize that that our own people are experiencing it. We were labeling it burnout, you know, or or the guy's just a jerk, or, you know, he's, he just, he needs, he needs to retire. The guy's just not nuts. And, as I became a captain and started trying to help, you know, starting to recognize that people's struggles were more than just those issues. And I started having that conversation. I didn't even know about ISIS at the time. I was doing it because it was becoming more aware of it because of the pay cuts and the situations that were happening. I could see the anger building in the station and that negative energy affects everybody. One guy comes in and he spends an hour complaining, it affects that. that's a trickle effect. It's like a fungus, it just grows. And that negative energy turns into more negative energy, which turns into a miserable day. So I wanted to stop that early in the day, first thing in the morning during breakfast, I would, we would talk, get it out there, you know, what are you guys thinking about? And let him vent and try to lean into a more positive direction instead of a negative direction. Try to make them laugh, try to make fun. You know, do the things that we do. Put a cup on a broom with water in it and as they come in the door, it hits them in the face. Do things to lighten it up and make it more fun. But there were times when that didn't work and there had to be a a deeper conversation. Um, But then we had a family member who went into the rabbit hole. And I, again, naive, didn't understand why he was in the rabbit hole. I just thought he wasn't nice. I thought he was just mean, wasn't like us. And my husband's brother, Barry Bruder, who developed Isis, my current nerve feedback came into town. He he lives in California to his businesses. And he, we had dinner, he met that family member. And when dinner was over, he took me aside, took both of us aside and said, you understand he's suffering. We're like, what, what? And he helped us understand not only was he suffering probably from PTSD, anxiety and depression but he had had multiple concussions from playing football. So he had post concussion syndrome as well, which those symptoms, anxiety, depression, insomnia, things that most people are unaware can linger and get worse over years. And I wasn't aware of that. So when he gave us basically a lesson of what to recognize, I started doing some research. I needed to wrap my head not only around this family member, but oh my God, have I been ignoring all of this and not really managing it right? And I spent months learning on how to recognize people who were suffering. And then Hugh's brother Barry gave us the system and taught us. We went to California and got the training, got the training to actually use microcurrent neurofeedback. We brought it home and we treated him, and the change was remarkable. It happened. It took about six or seven sessions, and we call it a shift where the delta wave shifts and they start to act the way they did, or they should be acting. We think mental illness is just, oh, um, it's just, he's, you know, he's just having issues right now. You need to put him on meds. No. You can actually correct it through stimulating the brain and altering the way the Delta wave is working. Because when you have depression or, anxiety or you're exposed to physical, emotional trauma, your Delta wave actually slows down, changes the way you act. You don't know that's happening. You don't understand it. You just know you feel terrible. We're stimulating the Delta wave and reversing what's happening we are doing it without drugs. So he went from a person who had been to a bunch of different colleges, wasn't succeeding, wasn't getting ahead, was kind of spinning his wheels to within two years, EMT, fire, paramedic, on the job. Huge difference. And that's when we went, wait a minute, hold on. This thing really works, this isn't, I mean, we're putting tiny electrodes on people's brain just stimulating them and thinking, oh, come on. That really work. Does that come on? It does. You can see it with them sitting in the chair. They come in, their shoulders roll, they're very anxious, machines going crazy. And after a couple of exposures, they're like, they're laying back, and they're like, Wow. I feel pretty good. Just like that. It's remarkable. So I had a medical condition that forced me to leave the fire service. Um, I was of age, it was time. I would have stayed, but I had no choice. And so when we left, we opened an office. Started with a small little executive office, advertised a little bit to local fire departments, just letting them know we're here. And one step at a time, we've built our practice to now we have a much larger office with three systems going and we've seen hundreds of firefighters and not just firefighters i mean even housewives we see people that have experienced trauma and their delta wave is altered and they're not sleeping they're not eating they're not leaving their house they're anxious don't know why They're depressed. They don't want to to do anything. They've lost that desire to live. And I've seen it from every level. I've seen people who've just had a traumatic event who respond right away and they're done in a few visits. And then I've seen somebody who's been suffering for years. I had a firefighter who hadn't left his house in a year. A year. Had not left his house. And now he's traveling all over the world. So I, I've seen it do
0: some miraculous things. I've got to ask you, have you actually done the treatment yourself? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely, oh yeah. I,
1: I may not have been in full-blown PTSD when I left. The job had definitely affected me. It had, I was, I had a short trigger, right? you could You could piss me off quickly and I'm generally very patient. And, and giving myself a treatment isn't as easy as giving somebody else, but I found myself doing that. I found myself, if I did not feel calm. if I felt that edge coming on. I'd give myself a treatment or he would give me a treatment. And I, within 24 hours, it was completely gone. So if you catch it early, it goes away much quicker. If you let that build up and let it go on, it takes longer to bring it back. It's like we we tell our patients, you know, you've been suffering for five, six, and even ten years. Give us two months and we'll correct it. Give us two months to straighten that out. Two months is not a lot to ask when you've had 10 years of suffering. So we notice the people that have, you know, that are struggling the most take a little bit more time to, to have sustainability, which is they don't do this forever. This isn't like you go to your therapist once or twice a week, which I've mentioned. It's we treat them until they're, they're, they're feeling hundred percent and then we let them go, they're done. They only come back if they have another significant event, loss of a family member, loss of a child, near death experience, something significant that they know, oh, wait a minute, I'm starting to feel bad again. And they'll call me, Jackie, I need to come in for a tune up. And they come in for one or two appointments and then I don't see them again. It's, it's been around for a long time, but Barry has fine-tuned it to where you don't feel it, you don't know what's happening. It's so simple and relaxing that most people don't even know what's happening to them. They'll come back and say, you know, I, I don't really understand what's going on, but you know, I normally get really pissed off when I drive People trigger me, and you know how that goes. People, drivers in Florida out of control. <laughs> and they they come, you know, they get triggered. Ah, they yelling and screaming. And goes, no, I almost hit me today and I could have cared less. That I don't understand why. I know why. The clinicians know why. It's not a coincidence that you had ISIS the day before. It's the, it's because of ISIS that they're not being triggered enough angry you know their their family members would normally our family members trigger us because we live with them they know our numbers and the families are telling us wow they're not triggered anymore i can't get them angry It's, it's almost like i try to say it's almost like bringing the child back bringing happy back brings you back to to when things are really simple, and playing in the yard you know, with the hose and the mud and that, and that was good. It's like that allows you to be happy with not having anything stimulating you. You don't have to have something entertaining. You just feel good all the time. Not something I think we all need. Yeah. <laughs> all right? Yeah. <laughs> Especially with COVID. <laughs> And all
0: the isolation. I, I wanted to I wanted to rewind a little bit, mm-hmm. um, and we we're we we're talking about leadership, and I mean this kind of ties in to the the triggering effect. But um, one thing that we didn't touch on is your experience in high stress environments where you're the incident commander. You're, you're the one that's in charge and, you know, you're familiar with your crew, very tense situation, whatever it might be. And you can see the change in your people that, that anxious energy, that, you know, high stress level, and you can feel it in yourself, how, How have you, uh, can you think of a time like that? And um, can you tell us about it? Maybe how you dealt with that, how you overcame that, that feeling so that you could perform?
1: I don't know why it is what it is, but when all hell breaks loose, I do the opposite. I go straight into okay, it can't get any worse, right? We're we're here to make it better. And I've had very few instances where the firefighters were kind of a little too loose. Never happened to me. I mean, I think I can only mention one time, maybe two in my entire career, where I had to redirect a a firefighter, where I had to stop them put my hand on them and go, stop what you're doing. Like, I need you to, let's refocus here. This is, this is what we need to do, let's refocus. Most of the time on the call, they knew their position when, when that morning. They knew what their job was. They, they already know what to do. And yeah, there's obviously circumstances that are strange. Like we had a, a, a woman who tried to commit suicide by standing in front of a train. And she got hit by that train. Well, she survived. That's not normal, right? And she's under the train. How do you train somebody to that, right? It's, it's nature that they knew what to do, they got under there and they took care of their job. But then, then we had a situation, I'll give you the call, it was difficult for me. And it was a, a learning lesson for me it was early on as, a, as an officer and I had, A Miami-Dade County police officer's daughter drowned in a pool and she was with her uncle and he was babysitting that day. She was like seven and he didn't swim and she didn't swim and they jumped into the deep end instead of the shallow and by accident in a public pool in the middle of a complex, went straight to the bottom. And she pulled them back up because she was freaking out so much. He was pulling her down He had to get her off so that he could get to the side and get something to save her and he couldn't. So he ran and called security and security called us and the cop, another police officer got there and pulled her out he knew her. Mm. So he started CPR, very stressful. So one, we know it's a police officer's daughter. Two, family members there just totally, I mean, He's blaming himself. It's, it's a bad cause, fluid in her lungs, it's a bad situation. And I've got a young um, female paramedic not been on the job long. Not a lot of experience, never worked a child. Of course, I'm gonna put her in at the head. She needs this experience. I've had it, my other firefighters had it. She needs to be there. So I told her, you're gonna know, get at the head, you're gonna drop the tube. And she goes, okay. So she's at the head, right, We're around a pool. And we gave her the blade, we gave her the tube. We're ready, every CPR is in progress. She just got to tell us when she's ready. And she froze. She didn't move. She just stood there. I said, all right, come on, let's do this. Come on, we're on the clock, we really need that tube. And she just stood there. She was frozen, she was blank, Nothing wasn't moving. I tapped her on the shoulder and I said, hey. And she looked at me and I said, it can't get worse. It could only get better, right? It's, just, it's gonna get better. Let's just drop the tube. because of course we thought we could get her right back. She couldn't do it. She just blanked out. She, she just didn't move. I said, all right, get up, get out. And I, she, she wasn't listening and I had to physically Tap her on the shoulder, I said, please get up and get out. And it was probably the only time I thought I really lost my cool because she was blank. And I normally wouldn't have raised my voice a bit in a situation like that. Because you never yell, you never run on a call, and you never act out of control, but she was blank. And I said, get up and get out. So I wanted her step away so one of us could get in that place. Cause you know, with a child, you need an airway.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And she got up and it took 45 seconds for it to click. After I nudge her and get up and get out. And she got up and she got out of the position and the other firefighter dropped right in. And I started CPR and I looked up at her and I said, you can still help. And she did. She did help. She, she finally kind of wrapped her head around the whole thing and she did some other stuff and it was fine. But when we got back to the station, um, the other firefighter, not even her, she said nothing. The other, now we talked about it on the whole way back from the hospital, are you okay? And she kept saying, I'm okay, I'm okay, I'm okay. She was not okay. Back to recognition. I wasn't recognizing as much as I should have at that point. I should have put the unit out of service. A good leader would have put the unit out of service right then and there and had a really more intense talk, a personal one-on-one face-to-face talk with her. We got back to the station and I called the fire alarm office and I said, I wanna put the unit out of service, but I should have done it then. I did it when we got back to the station. The other firefighter came in and he sat down and he goes, I I need to say something to you. I said, okay, now him and I had been working together for two years and he goes, you were really rude. And that was uncalled for. I don't know, why did you do that? And it hit me hard. I was like, "Um, she wasn't listening. She wasn't doing her job. He goes, but there's ways Jackie, you don't do that to her. It's obvious she was struggling. And I I said, you're right. I could have handled that better. I handled it very poorly. And so it took, I I knew I had not done a great job, but I didn't realize anybody else thought I didn't do a good job. I brought her back in and we sat down, I apologize. And then we really sat and talked. And no, she was not okay. She ended up we ended up having a critical incident stress debriefing. She ended up going home. She ended up calling out sick for a couple shifts. I had to call her at home to see if she was okay. Then I called her mom, because her mom's a nurse. And I knew her mom was a nurse. I called her mom and said, you know, this is what's happening. I don't know if she's reached out to you. Maybe you can, we can get her some help. And her mom called her. And when her mom called her, she got the help she needed. But I can honestly say that was, if I were to look back at some of the things that have happened, that was handled very poorly on my part. I did not show the leadership I should, have, I should have showed. I should have handled that the way I do normally, lean over on the officer and say, okay, go ahead. and It's okay, just go ahead and step away. We got this. I didn't do that. I didn't do it. So I managed that badly. And I, I learned from that experience And it taught me to recognize people, you know, we're not robots, we're people. And when it comes to kids, it's hard. And it has happened. What happened there has happened a few times. Young employees have never done, we had a childbirth, a complicated childbirth and firefighter had never seen it before. He not only never delivered a baby, but When he did his hospital stay, nobody had a child. So he'd never physically seen it happen in real life. And he was just freaked out. And he looked at me and goes, I I need help. I can't do this. He physically said that to me in the back of a moving vehicle. And I just put the clipboard down and said, no worry. We got this. Because I had learned from that other experience to not push him to try to make him do it himself. I joined him. I made it a part of, okay, we, we, we got this, we can do this. So yeah, I've, I've made my mistakes and I've learned from them. I don't think if we don't make any mistakes, we don't become better people. And luckily the fire service is recognizing that where when we screw up, we're not just criticizing that crew, we're going, hey, this is what went wrong. Let's see if we can learn from this and, and show others how to, how to, if you're in that similar situation, to change it. But other than those small situations, I very rarely, very rarely had anyone like question me or refuse to do something or not be a team player, but many times give advice because that was part of my morning briefing. I'm like you guys. I'm just a pencil pusher. I'm here to just make sure everything goes okay. I'm part of you. So if there's something that I'm not doing, or you have a question or you think we need to change something or tactics, I wanna hear it from you. I want you to tell me. I want you to verbalize it, to come up to me, say something. You've got a better way of doing it. I wanna know. So I always left that door open for them to kick in to get involved, to be a part of it. So yeah, we would get on a call and if they had a better way of doing it, they would say, "Hey, why don't we try this? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, you can skin a cat a million ways and that's why you have three people on a truck or four people on a truck. You can't do it by yourself. This is all about the team. And if you nurture that team, what a force, what a force. If not only are you physically capable of doing the job, emotionally connected with your crew, where you like each other, oh, forget it. Forget it. Everything goes like clockwork. It's, it can be a really good thing if you nurture that. So Leadership is about teamwork. It's about being a part of that team, not, not you being here and them being there you're there together. You may ultimately have more responsibilities and you may have to be more accountable than they are in certain situations. But if you're not opening your eyes and your ears to your team who has knowledge and input, you're you're, you're hurting yourself. You're hurting a your patient. You're hurting the your crew.
0: Throughout your career, I'm certain you've mentored people, but You've also received mentoring along the way, because you know we don't we don't do it on our own. Um, I'm just curious if you could share with with the audience some of the most effective mentoring that you've received, so, something that really helped shape who you are and how you performed as an officer. You know, this is gonna sound so corny.
1: Um, So my husband's firefighter, paramedic, he was a chief fire officer for Miami-Dade and he's now a deputy fire chief. He was probably the single most effective person when it came to understanding the things I couldn't understand. I would, I worked down South and I lived in Davie. We lived in Davie. So that's an hour drive, hour and a half coming home in the morning. And so he, I would call him on the way home. Most of the time because I was so exhausted if I didn't talk to somebody, I'd fall asleep. Because I always worked at busy stations and never had slow stations. And anything that I questioned, anything that I was struggling with, anything that, you know, cause you go through the day the day after. Hey, did I do that well? How could I have handled that? You know, what did I learn from that? And I would bounce it off him. And sometimes it was just to get it off my chest, because it was a dead kid or someone got dismembered, or the situation was very ugly. And it was killing me inside and I needed to. But then there was other times where I was struggling with a problem employee, and how to manage that problem employee. And he taught me that if you put them first, he taught me that and, and he learned that as well because he became a chief fire officer. So chief fire officer, does so management. So you have to consider the needs of management with the needs of the employees. But the employees come first, management is always going to win because they're your workforce, they're your people. So he taught me that if you put them first and you let them know that you're gonna be behind them at every turn and that you'll do whatever it takes to make their life better, then your life will be better. So he was the, the strongest influence I think in my career because he was so level-headed and he's so smart. He's able to be neutral, even though he loved me. He was, because he's in the fire service, he was able to just go, okay, well, like when I told him about that child, he goes, well, you, you really could have managed that a little better, right? He didn't say, oh, no, don't worry. You, you know, you, you were hot at the time. He didn't pacify me he said, you, know, you probably could have managed that better. And he was right. He always called me on it. He never let it pass by. He brought it to my attention. Look, you didn't do a really good job there. Maybe you need to readdress that. Think about that. Not think about this, think about that. And bottom line is it always boiled down to take care of your people and they're gonna take care of you. That's what it all boiled down to.
0: One thing that you just said really really hit home with me and it doesn't just apply to to spouses but that mindset of it to me it's a sign of how much you care for somebody when you're willing to hold them accountable because it's going to improve Uh, their, their capacity to operate, improve their awareness and, and improve them as leaders. If you hold them accountable, but not in a, a negative way, there, there's a way to manage that approach and it's much easier to manage that approach when you, when you genuinely care about that other person. And it's, so important to genuinely care about your people because that's really, to me, that's the only way to ensure their success. You you really have to legitimately care about them. Even if you don't particularly like them, you have to care about them and care about their success, genuinely care about their success. And I don't know, I just... I thought that was uh, pretty profound, that particular example, because you know that he loves you and he could have just said something nice, oh, don't worry about it, but that, that wasn't going to help you. So, no, that's mm-hmm. awesome.
1: You're right, and I'm I'm grateful. Now, I know there's people out there, and, I, and I, I've I, heard this before, and I'm sure you've heard it where they say, um, can't say the word, but it's, don't ask where you where you live, All right? So they say you shouldn't be dating somebody that you work with. You shouldn't get involved with someone in the fire service. If you're in the fire service, it's gonna create a conflict. But the truth is, is, who better understand you than somebody that's in it had i married a businessman he would not have gotten that call he wouldn't understood when i called them and said oh my god i just had this call or this woman got dismembered and her three-year-old child had every bone in her body broken. And I had to suction her teeth out of her airway to bring her back to life because you know, she was in pieces and it was in a, in an out, it was in a field in the middle of a Homestead homestead. It took, you know, 20 minutes to get help. It was, he doesn't get that. But my firefighter paramedic husband gets that. Not only can he empathize, but he was there with me in that field. And I'm telling him that story. So he knows what it feels like. So he can be there for me. He can give me the compassion that I need. He can give me the guidance. He can walk me through something like that. So I think it's brilliant being with another firefighter. And not only that, who else is a better person to spend time with? We talked about it earlier. Firefighters, as we know, I'm going, I need a kidney. We went public on Friday. Monday, I had 10 people, including you, who had offered their kidney. My my girlfriend said, what are you talking about? 10 people, how did that happen? I said, they're firefighters. And that's all I had to say to her. That's when she went, oh, okay, got it right? Who better to be around people who risk their lives for strangers? Yeah, I want to be around that guy. I want to be with that guy. Because that guy's not only seen the worst of everything, but then he knows how to manage those bad times. He can put his arm on your shoulder and and help you cope. Because he's seen all that bad stuff. And they don't they don't, they're not like regular people that you go to work, you know, people that you know that go to work every day and they maybe go have drinks with their friends after work and they're kind of buddy-buddy. You know, they're, they're good friends, you know, they, they talk, they may be on the phone, they know about their each other's lives, but when that person breaks their leg, they you know they'll send you flowers or a card and they'll call you okay. The fireman's gonna come to your house and build a ramp ramp for you. The fireman's gonna do your lawn for the next couple of weeks till you're back on your feet. The fireman's gonna go work your shift so you don't lose pay in your pocket. It's gonna take your kids to school. It's gonna make sure your wife's okay. Make sure the bills are paid. That's what a fireman does. So we're, we're who doesn't wanna be around someone like that? Firemen are firefighters, they're great people. They just are. And, we surrounded ourselves with most of my friends are firefighters, because you want to be with those people.
0: Yeah, it's, it's funny. The one thing that came to mind here as we're talking was the, the conversation that we had after our last interview, where we were also talking about you know the other side of firefighters, uh, male firefighters, uh, and how you navigated being being an attractive woman in this male-dominated field, and I think that there are. Uh, Women, Well, actually, I know women in the fire service that have dealt with it and maybe didn't know how to manage it or managed it much like you did in the the past. But uh, I just thought it was such a great story and um, really a, a pretty good example of what some women in the fire service experience. But if you could tell that story about you know, being asked out by guys that knew you were married and just, it, it's, it's funny, um, but it's so true. <laughs> hey, listen, men and
1: women are gonna be men and women. They're gonna be attracted in every place in the world. And yes, I'm outnumbered, clearly outnumbered with more men than women. I think the same situation probably happens you know, in, in a regular work office. It's just, um, it's strange. I'm married, I was married to a fire chief. You know, He was a battalion chief. And often, it wasn't on one isolated occasion, I would get a walk out to my, to my car as I'm putting my gear, because I always took my gear with me because I worked overtime. I'd be followed out to the car by another officer, another firefighter. And, He'd be making small talk and, which is very often what happens, you know, hey, what's going on? Let's catch up. And then we'd get to the truck and they'd say, so what are you gonna do today? It's like, hmm, I'm not sure. they would go, so maybe you and I can get together. He'd be like, uh, what? Like, yeah, you know, maybe we can get together. would be like, so you know, I'm married, you know, to you, he's, he's Italian too, right? You, you know that. Oh, yeah, I know that. That's okay. I don't want to get married or anything. I just want to have fun. <laughs> I'd be like, okay, so you know better, right? <laughs> you know, but I don't need to tell you this. You know better. And he goes, do I? Yeah, yeah, you know better. You're just wasting your time, going down the wrong road. You go on your way. It's, no, no, no. Not smart. And it had to become a conversation at home. Right, because obviously if he was attracted to me in his eyes, maybe other men were attracted to me. And so he would ask me, so are there any other guys on the job that are hitting on you? And from the very beginning of our relationship, I made it very clear that was a conversation that was not going to be had between him and I. I am not going to tell you about all the people that hit on me at work. Whether it's your friend or not your friend, I'm not going, it's none of your business. I don't wanna know who's hitting on you all day long. Can't change that, people are people. It's it's up to me to manage that situation, not him. He doesn't manage my issues, I manage my issues. I manage myself. So he didn't like it, he wanted to know, hey, my friends are hitting on you, I wanna know. I was like, I'm not gonna tell you, it's just not gonna happen. Not going to get over there. People are going to be who they are. And sometimes they want what they want. And that doesn't mean they're going to get what they want. And if you handle it right and don't disrespect them and treat them poorly and then throw them under the bus, you're good. And I, I never had anyone who was, you know, aggressive or inappropriate. I mean, I had patients who were. <laughs> Definitely had patients grab me all the time, that happened all the time. And we took care of that really quickly and easily. But that was a rule, did not tell them, because you're right, a girl in the fire service, not only are you, um, I know the girls know this, you're not only being hit on by your guys at work, especially if you're single, but you're getting hit on in the hospital, by the nurses, by the ER, by the patients. I'll see patients, family members at Publix and I'll hear them go, hey, that's sort of Let's go talk to her. I'm not going to talk to her. Yeah, I'm going to go talk to her. And then they'll come up to me and they'll say, why you want to call? I always know who they are. Always know who they are. And so, you know, I really like the way you handle that call. Can I get your number? I'd be like, I'm really flattered. Thank you so much. But I'm happily married. And that usually shuts it down, I would. You can let them know you're happily married. And I'm not just married. You have to throw in that I'm happily married. Thank you very much. you let letting them know I'm I'm not available. Bottom line. Can't can't knock them for trying, though. It's certainly not gonna get I'm flattered. Why wouldn't you be flattered? You're you're flattered by it. Yeah. They don't share it. You keep it to yourself. And that's really okay. I know some girls like to handle it different, you know, but that's just the way I looked at it. it. It made life easier for me. And I think it made it better for all of us. And most of the time, those young men that were doing that kind of stuff always ended up getting in trouble and that's too bad. Yeah. You, you know, you can't make them be who, can't tell them what to do. They have to follow their path and learn their way.
0: So, what advice would you give to um, women that are aspiring to be firefighters, or you know, maybe they're they're firefighters now and they haven't had the same experience with, you know, six brothers, and they're having maybe they're having a difficult time adjusting to the male-dominated occupation. What advice do you think would be most beneficial to to help them be more successful and and enjoy their their career moving forward?
1: Well, first of all, I think the most important thing is to consider the fact that we're still men and women. We're different. You, You can't be a girl and really be a guy. You have to recognize their strengths and their weaknesses as they are recognizing your strengths and weaknesses. We all have them. And as long as you have an open mind to the things that are happening, for example, that situation that happened to me in the car, it could have been a completely different situation, right? I could have gotten really offended. How could you dare? You know I'm married and Gotten angry, gone inside, called the chief and said, This is inappropriate behavior. And, you know, you need to talk to him and this needs to stop. This is harassment. Yeah, anything can be turned into something ugly. And if you recognize people are just people and no one is exactly like you and no one is perfect, and you give them the respect and you communicate. How you feel, and you don't try to hurt people. My goal was never to ever throw anybody. I don't think I, in all the years it was in the I don't think I ever wrote anyone up. I had a conversation with the chief about a certain individual. You know that one. There was one other where I had to have a conversation with the chief, but I don't think I ever wrote anybody up because it was a conversation. So what I would say is, if you're in a situation that's uncomfortable and you don't know how to manage it, first reach out to your female friends that are on the job and and get their opinion on it. But first and foremost is have a conversation with that person who's making you uncomfortable and let them know, hey, I respect you, but this makes me uncomfortable. Maybe we could find a way to work around it. You know, if, if they're hitting on you all day, every day, and they're relentlessly being aggressive, that is a conversation you have to have. You cannot avoid that. That is gonna affect every part of your life. So you have to take them aside and go, Yo, no bro. Okay, I've already told you how I felt. I, I really, I need this to stop. And if at that point it doesn't stop, and it's uncomfortable, continues, you need to go to that person's officer and say, look, I don't want to make a big deal. I don't want to put this in writing, but can you just have a conversation? Can we bring us all together in a room and let's talk about this? I need a resolution. I think that if if girls going up in the fire service, one has someone that's been in the fire service help mentor them on what to do, what to expect and kind of know going in some of the things that are gonna happen so that they're not surprised, that hands down definitely makes the transition much better. But if you don't have that, remember that use your skills. We're we're taught in paramedic school how to talk to people, how to ask questions, how to give answers, how to manage uncomfortable situations sometimes. That's what I would recommend most girls do. When you're put in a bad situation, if you have to be in a bad situation, don't blow it off. Don't think it's gonna go away. Don't assume it will go away. There's always gonna be that underlying, it has to be worked out. And you do it by respecting them, just like you're asking them to respect you. Have the conversation. And if it doesn't work, work your way up to the next guy. Maybe he can help them understand how uncomfortable you are. And and understand that you are in a male dominated world. There's always gonna be people who are not gonna accept you because you're a girl. They don't want you there. And that's okay too. That's, That's same everywhere. I mean, you could be working in an office and someone there just doesn't like you because you you're, you're wear glasses or you have red hair or you're, you know, you're, you're gay or you're not gay. or There's always gonna have people who aren't gonna like each other in every situation. But that doesn't mean that you don't respect them or show respect or show kindness and don't allow it to turn into something ugly.
0: There have been situations that I've read about that have been shared with me where it's not just simple, you know, guy trying to hit on the girl, but actually is more aggressive where there's physical contact that, you know, is unwelcome. or even, you know, explicit verbiage of what they'd like to do. In my opinion, that the firehouse is not a place for that. You know, they these, these women that we work with, I feel deserve the same respect as the men that we work with. And you might have that opinion that they don't belong but that doesn't give you the the right to be a be an asshole be a pig you know there's that's beyond the realm of uh, accepted behavior yet it still occurs and i know that by and large the women are more likely to accept that as just part of the territory. And they'd rather deal with that than how they would be treated after reporting it. Mm-hmm. I lack the, the skills to really give advice on that, like how to handle that. Because in my mind, it's like, I'd punch them. um but you know you can't do that and uh i haven't walked in the same shoes as as you and other women so i don't even know how that would transpire you know but there there has to be a good way to manage that there has to be like that that breaking point that tipping point where you actually take action. And in your mind what what is that tipping point? Is it the first incident or the second or is it I, I just uh to me the first incident is like no there you crossed the line, pal. I mean what what is your take on that? Have you Been there? Yeah, have you been there? Been there.
1: I have fortunately not had to go too far to make something stop. Um, I don't know if it's because I'm a very strong female and when you cross my boundary of, like I have a very lean boundary my stand is very soft. You can cross it a lot before I am going to say something. You can say things to me, you can verbalize some of those things that you're talking about, just not phase me at all. Talk all you want. The moment you put your hands on me, that's a problem. Don't put your hands on me. So if I get like a, you know, a pat on the butt, once or twice, that's okay. The person continues doing that, which has happened. I will turn around, I'll grab his hand and I said, that isn't wanted, I'd like you to stop. If it happens again, which has only happened once in my career, where I've literally leaned up against him and in his face and said, if you touch me again, we're going to have a problem. We're going to have a problem. I don't wanna have a problem. I know you respect me more than that. Don't wanna have a problem. And that always shuts it down. For me, it has always. Usually the first time there's some of that ass grabbing as they call it. You're fooling around, you're having fun. That's one thing, but if it keeps up, there's a way of going, oh, I wish you'd stop, Uh uh-uh. Not, oh, I wish you'd stop. That is not, taken as, you better stop what you're doing. There's a tone that needs to be changed if you really want him to recognize that this flirtation has crossed the line and that tone needs to be done the moment it makes you feel uncomfortable. If that first slap of the butt didn't make you feel uncomfortable and it was kind of, oh, okay, so he's, you're flattered that he thinks you have a nice butt. Then it happens again and again, and then you're going like, okay, you are having to think, all right, this is not cool. This guy's, you know, he's making a pass and he's doing it passively passive aggressive. That's when you have to decide, okay, now I need to do something about it. And I never tried to do it in front of a group of people, but that one circumstance was in front of a group of people. It was, it was in a kitchen very small narrow kitchen and it he was doing it to rob them up and it was totally disrespecting me and I turned around and I said right to his face and right in front of them that is unwanted and I needed to stop now so not only was I putting him in check but I was letting them know I was putting him in check so now if he does it again they know I'm uncomfortable with it and now they know where my line in the sand is. How far can you push her? Because sometimes when you push and you don't do anything, they're gonna, they're gonna push fr- further. If you don't do anything, they'll keep going. So at some point, there has to be a line in the sand where you let them know, okay, I'm cool with mass grabbing for a little bit, but I've got my boundaries as well. And you don't know where people's backgrounds are, you know? Firefighters might have had a dad that's very aggressive and that's the way he flirted with girls and he learned that habit from his parents and that's just what has worked for him. And so he does it to see if it'll work with you. And until you make it very clear that is not working, well, he really understands. So yeah, I know that there are issues and I know for a fact because I had a girlfriend of mine who on probation was harassed by her fire chief, her battalion chief. Hmm. And that was a problem. And she tried to get him to stop and she asked him to stop and he wouldn't stop. And she finally had to get her supervisor who went to his supervisor and it it, it it, it wasn't good for her. It wasn't good for him. It made the whole department look bad because he he didn't recognize the, the line in the sand. And we all have to be able to do that for one another. Like I said, I am dating, I'm married, almost 20 years to a firefighter. He had on me the work, right? I knew him for 17 years before he ever asked me out. I didn't even know if he liked me. I had no idea. We were friends for so long. And then that one day, there was a little something different. I was like, okay, wait a minute. You're my friend. No, mm-mm. no, because he was my friend. You know, you take that big chance. Yeah. have a guy who's your friend. If you date him, things go wrong. You've lost your friend most of the time but i had to recognize was that really okay did that really happen is he and then you know it took him a long 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 time to finally ask me out you know he even asked his children first before he asked me out because there's that line in the sand yeah. that line in the sand you, you see each other work You work together do do you wanna cross that line? Do you wanna take that chance? Do you want to take that possibility where you ask that person out and they one, either reject you or two, talk poorly about you or you do go out and you break up and now it's all over the department. this So it can have its benefits and it can also strangle you. It's a chance you're taking. I've been lucky. I knew him for so long, I knew what kind of man he was before I got involved. He was my friend first. But again, I had to be open to the idea that maybe he liked me in a different way to be able to recognize that and be open to it. So he had probably had to have the same fears and not knowing how that could turn out for him, could turn out badly for him. So it goes both ways, but it's generally the other way around. It's generally, but honestly I have also seen and believe it or not, I've seen it come from a female officer towards a male probation employee or it was the other way around where I felt extremely uncomfortable with the things she was saying to him and the way she was talking to him, where I had to say something to her and help her recognize, okay, I, you know, she's single. I, I can understand her being attracted to him. He was attractive. And I could see her, I could see why she was attracted to him, but it was, I mean, if it made me uncomfortable and I've got a very slim line in the sand, you've got to know it made other people uncomfortable and they just wouldn't say anything, she was an officer. He wasn't saying anything, he's on probation, it's her officer. So it's not only isolated to men doing it to women, it's also women doing it to men. And I brought it to her attention because it made me uncomfortable. And I thought it was inappropriate. And he hadn't said anything to her. He hadn't said anything to her. And I'm I'm sure it made him uncomfortable. Or maybe it didn't. Maybe he was just flattered.
0: I'm so grateful to you coming on, agreeing to do another interview with me, and especially to to talk about everything that we've talked about today. I, I think that it's extremely valuable information that I think rarely gets shared. Um, and I, I really hope that that men and women in the fire service listen to this conversation and and walk away with a better understanding on how to how to treat one another uh, at the firehouse on the job, and and extremely valuable leadership lessons. Thank you very very much.
1: You're welcome, Dave. It was enjoyable being here.
0: Is there is there anything that you can think of that maybe we didn't talk about that? Would be of value to, to men and women uh, in, the, in the fire stations.
1: I think that if, I think most people that go into the fire service go in there because they want to be there for people. And if we remember to not just be there for the public, to be there for each other at all times, I think we'll be good. So when we lose that connection with one another is when things usually go awry in a station, when there's finger pointing. So people stop thinking about all those big things and go back to the basics of, you know, we're a team, let's make that team work. And, and let's let's really get to know what it is that's important to each other and how to make that team work. It doesn't matter what color you are, where you're from, your nationality, none of that. Actually, I think that's a that's a benefit of having multiracial in your in your firehouse. Because I certainly don't know everything about everybody else, but I want to. And if you're open to that, so when you have a girl come into your station, or you have someone of color. You have someone who's not like you come into that station instead of immediately going, oh God, here we go. You're gonna to have to learn how to deal with this. Open your mind to, wow, where's this person been? How's she gonna be an asset? What, you know, what does she know? What can I learn from her or what can I learn from him? If we look at it like that, we'll be a success in the fire service because we're always learning from each other every day. We do it through mistakes. We, we do it from listening. And we do it from experiences. So if you keep your mind open to those new experiences, fire service will be more enjoyable, less stressful. it will create better leaders and we need good leaders. We're always being challenged from a lot of different directions. And the better your skills are, the happier you'll be
0: and your crew. It's huge. Thank That's you. Huge. and for for those listening, if you haven't heard the interview with with Jackie and Hugh, it aired on April second. so Take a look. It's on all the podcast platforms. This, whatever you're listening uh, to this episode on, check it out. It's a really, really great interview. It talks more in depth about PTSD and uh, the micro neuro, what is it called? (laughs) Micro. Neurofeedback. Micro energy neurofeedback
1: micro current neurofeedback. Okay.
0: And, <laughs> and, and okay. I guess this. So yes, thank you so much for, for coming on again. Uh, mm-hmm. This was great talking with you. Yeah.
1: You're very welcome. It was enjoyable. It's my pleasure.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of From Embers to Excellence. Please like and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Follow me on your favorite podcast platform and visit hollenbachleadership.com for additional content. My goal is and always will be to add value to as many people as possible. So if I can be of any assistance to you or someone you know, please connect with me via email or on one of my social media accounts linked on the homepage of my website. Remember, our failures don't define us unless we let them, and the only true measure of a leader is the success of their team.